Home during a pandemic has taken on new significance. It's a place for shelter, for safety, for learning, and for comfort. And as the coronavirus pandemic drags on and more and more tenants fall behind on rent, all that home offers is increasingly at risk of being lost. The eviction crisis looming over the entire country is particularly acute here in Houston, where a moratorium on evictions ended May 19th, months earlier than many major cities. Constable! Hello! It's Deputy Benny Gant's job to execute evictions. Thank you. Okay, guys. He's been a constable in Harris County for 30 years. There's not a lot in there. It looks like they got most of their things and left. Okay. They were given notice yesterday morning about 7.45 or so. Deputy Gant is carrying out two evictions at Somerset Apartments in Northwest Houston. Uh, so it's anywhere from about 15 to 20 of them right now that are currently pending. So it's been um, no two months days. and you haven't got your, your nope. evictions? Nope, haven't got my court date. We always try to work out deals with people and arrangements. Um, and they're pretty good about either paying or moving out, not really having to get to this point. So being the fact that we're already behind because of COVID, and then to have the courts open up like two, two and a half months ago, and now we're filing, these people are behind like six months of rent. According to data from Eviction Lab, Houston has seen the second highest number of eviction filings of the 17 major cities they track, with 8,635 filings since March 15th. On Friday of last week, you know, I had, I had a lady uh, stop me right out front here of this building. And uh, she was about 35 years old. She had a child that was, you know, maybe a year, year and a half old, possibly two years. And she had about a 12-year-old boy in the car. And all of her possessions were piled up inside of her car. And she told me, you know, can you help me? I've got no place to go. Well, I called two of the social service agencies, uh, the Salvation Army and the Star Hope Mission, uh, both places that give people shelter. They were both full. So we're at uh, Rockport Apartments in Southwest Houston. Um, they're apartments that have had uh, habitability issues before. And since the middle of March, since the beginning of the crisis, uh, they have uh, filed 28 evictions against renters. Zoe Middleton is the Southeast Texas co-director for Texas Housers, a low-income housing information service. The long-term solution is the feds appropriating and sending more money to municipalities and, and states so that they can disperse to their, their residents uh, for rental assistance and to help absolve their debt. And the shorter-term solution is a grace period ordinance so that people can remain housed during a pandemic uh, when houselessness is more likely to uh, increase the number of cases and transmissions. But property owners disagree that a grace period is the right solution. At the end of the day, it has the same effects as an eviction moratorium, really, of kicking the can down the road and postponing a problem that's continuing to grow. Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner refused to put a grace period ordinance before a city council vote at the end of July. But on August 5th, he and the city council passed an additional $20 million in rent relief that is to be distributed among property owners that enroll. Lenard Noble is among those who was saved by this aid, just a day before a judge was due to rule on his eviction. In February, he left his job as a security guard after getting hired as a TSA agent. Then, everything fell apart. I was to, you know, go to Atlanta for a two-week training and then come back here. Well, 
the pandemic happened that never took place because the airport shut down. Everything just happened. He's tried to find other work, but everywhere he went, he was told no one was hiring. He's also struggled to get unemployment benefits. All these systems, are, it's like a joke. Unemployment, you can never call and talk to no one. The city's rent relief program will cover his back rent from June, July, and August. But it's still uncertain what he's going to do in the months to come. My pandemic is not the pandemic, because I'm not dead. My pandemic is to, to me, who's going to look after me if you throw me to the street <clears throat> and I get sick? You know, when I, when I look out this window and I see renters and people who have worked hard their entire lives to pay their bills, pay their taxes, and provide a good living for them and their families, it's really hard to see them get blindsided this, by this pandemic. In general, we need to move away from thinking of housing as a commodity and as a, as a speculative financial instrument and really uh, adopt a cultural shift that lets us think of a home as a place for belonging, a home as a place for health, uh, a home as, as a place where our, our cultures are built. And if you think of a house as being any one of those things, decision-making will be much, much different, and I think we would already have uh, renters stabilized. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to New Deal Democracy. I'm your host, Zach Hill, recording from deep inside the 610 Loop in the heart of Houston, Texas, and we've got an amazing show planned for y'all today. I am super excited to have two amazing guests on today's show, Antonella and Trevor, both from a local grassroots community activist organization based here in Houston, Texas. Antonella and Trevor are active members in the organization Age of Change, which focuses primarily on direct action eviction protests and homelessness outreach here in Houston. Their organization is doing amazing work in Houston, and the interview is fantastic. After the interview, I'm also going to be talking about the wildfires going on out on the West Coast, and also apparently Bernie is warning the Biden campaign that it needs to start paying attention to the working class or Biden could be in trouble this November, so we're going to discuss that too. But before we get to our amazing interview with Antonella and Trevor from Age of Change, we're going to start with this episode's Fireside Chat. The last nine months have been unlike any other I've ever experienced in my life. For me personally, the back-to-back -back gut punches of the pandemic, followed by the suspension of Bernie's campaign, put me in a dark place for a couple of weeks. A lot of leftists had spare activist energy built up, deep inside of them smoldering, but that energy had been beaten down by the world appearing to fall apart all around them in 2020. Then, the murders of Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd stoked the fire of Black Lives Matter and spurred a new wave of populist uprisings demanding social and economic justice. Young people are looking around right now and realizing that there isn't a future for us in this country, and even our own existence on this planet seems precarious at the moment. 
The planet is burning and flooding and literally dying right in front of our eyes. Every year, the climate events get more and more extreme, never relenting. The younger generations realize they have no path to economic security or stability in this country the way America is presently constructed. Corporate America and Wall Street have captured all three branches of our American government and are using our own government against us to slowly choke the life out of the working class until we either die or submit. This shit is really, really bleak. And I think that any American that is being really honest with themselves at this point must be fully aware that neither of these two major parties is going to ever do the right thing to save us, the country, or even the fucking planet. Young people are active and on the streets, but it's important to remember that there is still an electoral component to change, so hear me out for a second. Even though Bernie's campaign was killed by Obama, and we've been left with two really shitty choices in Biden and Trump, that doesn't mean that you can't still prove a point by voting for Howie Hawkins and Angela Walker from the Green Party on November 3rd. Those two are absolutely amazing people. Coincidentally enough, they're both professional truck drivers. It doesn't get more blue-collar than that, folks. And it really is refreshing to listen to a presidential and vice presidential candidate who both speak openly and honestly about the real issues affecting working class Americans. But we can't stop with just voting green for president. You must also be researching down ballot races in your state, counties, and cities and support the hell out of any leftist candidates from any parties that don't ask you to compromise on your values and what you believe in. But at the same time, we can't put all of our eggs in one basket sitting around waiting for electoral change to save us. If the past nine months have proven just one thing definitively, it is that nobody from these two major parties is going to save us. Republicans are literally reactionary fascists that want to take us all the way back to chattel slavery. Democrats are better at using words to deceive the working class into believing that they are on our side, but since Jimmy Carter, the Democrats have a 50-year economic record that is every bit as cruel and reactionary as the unabashedly reactionary Republicans. Those 50 years are also uncoincidentally the exact career timeline of Joe Biden. Hmm... That means we're going to have to save ourselves by getting active. At least until we have the opportunity for real electoral change. And that means direct action on the streets in the form of mutual aid and other direct action protests. Local activism and outreach are the future of the left movement. We can't afford to sit around and wait for Nina Turner or AOC to challenge Kamala in 2024. We must stay active locally in the meantime, organizing and networking constantly in our respective cities. On this episode of New Deal Democracy, we have two amazing guests from a grassroots, youth and women-led community activist organization based here locally in Houston called Age of Change. Antonella, Trevor, and myself 
are going to be discussing the activism and outreach they've been engaging in here locally in Houston. They're involved in direct action protests against evictions at county courthouses, providing mutual aid to Houston's ever-increasing unhoused population, and also networking and organizing with numerous other like-minded grassroots community activist organizations locally here in Houston. Organizations like Age of Change are the future of the left movement. But the left needs a dozen local grassroots community activist organizations like Age of Change in every city in America. These local grassroots community activist organizations must network and maintain solidarity centered around economic and social justice for all Americans. And from this community of mutual aid, activism, and outreach, a network lying in wait for electoral opportunities is created that can be called upon to help with electoral politics on the ground when needed. These coalitions of organizations in every major city will be the electoral base moving forward for the left and can then be used to pounce on and seize power when opportunities for real electoral change finally do present themselves. Admittedly, this is a long-term project, but this is the only path forward for the left. So, stay local and stay active, people. It's our only hope. Welcome back to New Deal Democracy. I'm your host, Zach Hill, and we are now joined by two very special guests. Antonella is a grassroots activist and media liaison for Age of Change. Her most important issues are racial, economic, and immigration disparities and injustices. Trevor is a grassroots activist from Houston who has worked on numerous local political campaigns and is now an organizer with the Texas Campaign for the Environment as well as Age of Change. Antonella and Trevor, welcome to New Deal Democracy. It is so great to have both of y'all here. It is an honor and a privilege. How are both of y'all doing tonight? We're awesome. Thanks so much for having us. We're super excited to be on with you. And um, yeah, we're doing great. How are you doing, Zach? Doing great. I'm just really, really excited to have a local grassroots organization on New Deal Democracy. So I wanted to kind of start out with giving the listeners a little bit of background on y'all's organization. So why don't y'all start out telling me a little bit about Age of Change, kind of how y'all started, tell me about the founding and a little bit about how that came about, and then maybe tell, tell me a little bit about the core values of the organization and kind of what y'all are about. Just like tell everyone about Age of Change. Yeah, we were founded by a beautiful Latina woman by the name of Steph. We started in June. And essentially, we are a youth-led, women-led, grassroots organization working locally. And our primary actions have involved homeless outreach. Though it's important to stress that AOC is about total resistance, revolution, and rebirth of our society from hierarchical and capitalistic ones. Yeah, I would say Age of Change is a primary goal, um, is we're really building up active and autonomous networks um, of assistance and mutual aid 
with the aim of empowering and strengthening communities, um, wanting to bring about well-meaning for all Houstonians. Yeah, we are no longer accepting the things we can change and are instead changing the things that we cannot accept. Um, we are agents of change. Everybody who joins in the resistance, whether it's in Age of Change or not, are all agents of change. A quote by Martin Luther King is, um, change does not roll in on the wheels of inevitability, but comes with continuous struggle. Age of Change resonates with that. Um, because essentially, like, this is not an easy fight to fight. A system cannot fail those it was never meant to protect. And another quote that we like a lot is, the only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. And um, essentially, like, our motto is community, resistance, and rebirth. Very cool. So, Antonella, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself personally and how you got involved in Age of Change and kind of how you got tied in with the organization? Probably one of the first protests I had gone to by myself. And I walked up to City Hall and I interacted with three of the members directly at the beginning of the protest. And then we went to go counter-protest counter-protesters. <laughs> and but it was funny the way age of change did it because they did it in a way that i felt like i understood as a human being and it was a questioning trying to understand to have the right answers for them because obviously where they're coming from is ignorance and instead of anger which is so easy and i i say that as who i am because it's so easy for me to get angry at like the fascists essentially. Mm -hmm. And once I saw how they were behaving, it, it, you know, it was a way that I always wanted to understand and wanted to behave because they were having a conversation with these people versus just yelling a chant that they would never understand. That's interesting. Almost collectively, every single person that has wanted to get involved with Aid of Change has been someone who is just as messed up as the rest of everybody else, like myself, but also someone who has the empathy, the compassion, the humanity, the strength, and the resistance, and the fight to try to make a change in the social constructs that affect our community and um that's what i love so much about this organization essentially and that's why i decided to get so involved with them that's interesting so you've only been with the organization for a little while i guess but you're already you know the media liaison and pretty higher up in the organization um how many members do y'all have right now in age of change i'm just kind of curious yeah um so i actually haven't been in Age of Change for very long, but it's a very small organization, but because we, a lot of the, a lot of our members put in a lot of work and including like, if you want to do the work, you get to do the work. Yeah. That's, that's AOC's policy in regards to any kind of activist who wants to come to a part. And that's what I love so much also about Age of Change is that it's small enough to where everybody can put their voice as much as they want to. And it's big enough to make a small difference, but a difference nonetheless. 
um, currently our um, active members are about, I would say probably 17 to 19. And then we've had a good active recruits, maybe like six or seven. And then, but we have, we're, we're actively doing outreach. Yeah. And I think it's also important to add that age of change has been coordinating with other groups in Houston as well. So when we have these protests, we've got, you know, a hundred or 200 people out there um, because we are coordinating with, you know, other, you know, grassroots organizations as well. And I think it's very interesting the point you make about how we're small enough to where it's still a really democratic organization where people can have their voices be heard. And it's not, you know, like a vertically aligned organization where it's really the hierarchy has a lot of power. Um, voices are heard in the organization, but it's also big enough to where when you go out, you know, you're not going to be the only person out there. There are other people where you can have that community and you can work with other people and, you know, have enough people to really to, to get the change. So Trevor, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got tied in with Age of Change and um, how you've kind of been working with the organization? Yeah, definitely, Zach. Thanks. Also, we'll say, um, adding on to what you said, you know, being actively involved um, and working um, closely with all these other groups in terms of like, you know, organizing. It's um, one of the great things about our organization is that, you know, we are in touch with so many other groups doing great work and, um, you know, solidarity with everyone's um, activism and, and the struggles that everyone are, are fighting is, is always important. So that's, that's, a, that's a great thing about the group as well. One of the first things I actually, the first thing that I actually went to and was involved with, with, with Age of Change was the eviction protest. Mm-hmm. And, um, that was, I, I remember, uh, you know, when I, when I found out about that, I was really excited to go. That meant a lot to me um, because, you know, the evictions um, that were happening, it, it, just a huge, a huge issue that I hadn't actually seen um, enough events or um, protests actually going on about. And I remember, I think, I think earlier that week I had seen um, video of people in New Orleans um, standing, um, you know, using their bodies um, in front of the, the courthouse saying, no, you're not going to evict these people. And that was just super powerful to me. So, um, you know, when, Ant- when Antonella and I talked about the eviction protests, I was like, yeah, I'm definitely going to be there. Um, and, you know, from, from then on, you know, once I spoke with Antonella after the event and everything, I was like, yes, I'm definitely going to take on an active role and, and be part of the organization because I, I just really, you know, cared a lot about the work they're doing. I, I know me personally, the first time that I noticed Age of Change was y'all's eviction protest at the Chimney Rock Courthouse. And I remember seeing that same footage from New Orleans where the eviction protesters were locked arm in arm and there was hundreds of them and they were blocking all the landlords from even entering the courthouse. And I got chills watching that video. And I remember seeing y'all's eviction protest at the Chimney Rock Courthouse and just being so proud of Houston stepping up to defend the people that are essentially, you know, unable to defend themselves at this point. And I mean, it's not a secret that Houston is second in the nation right now in evictions. And we've had evictions ongoing all summer. And I think the really jacked up thing is that even though Trump has signed this federal evictions moratorium through the CDC, 
that hasn't changed the eviction docket here in Houston right now. Like yeah. Jen Rice, Jen Rice with Houston Public Media tweeted out yesterday that there are still 667 eviction cases on the docket for next week in Harris County. And that's fucked up, man. That shit is fucked up because we literally have a federal evictions moratorium that is meant to keep people safe and housed mm -hmm. in the middle of a pandemic. And Harris County just doesn't give a shit. Harris County just does not give a shit. So wh why don't y'all start talking about this evictions protest that y'all did? Because I know that was the first time that I'd heard about Age of Change. It was about a month ago, maybe even six weeks ago now. And you guys were on national news. Y'all were all over local news. You guys were everywhere. And it was awesome. You guys were all over all kind of media. Y'all were on real TV. Y'all were on the internet. Y'all were all over Twitter and Reddit and Instagram, but also traditional media like the Chronicle. So why don't y'all talk about the evictions protest and how that came about and how y'all organized it and kind of just tell me what it was like to be there on the ground for such like such an important moment where it's kind of like you know, city council hadn't done shit. Mayor Turner hadn't done shit. No one was doing anything for the people of Houston. And age of change with a couple of dozen people that really just care and wanted to make a difference, y'all showed up for some direct action. So yeah. kind of tell me about that protest. Tell me how it came about. Just kind of describe that day and kind of set the scene and tell me about it. You just, you were talking about Houston um, having, you know, an especially, you know, big problem when it comes to evictions. Houston actually was the largest city in the country without eviction protections, um, you know, during the, when the pandemic was starting. And then after, you know, back in May, they, uh, Texas Supreme Court let that, uh, let the statewide moratorium expire um, in May. So it's like, you know, all these people that were about to get evicted, you know, this is, this is something that was, was just at the forefront of all of our minds. And like the fact that we, you know, we were, could be out there to do anything about it is, yeah, definitely, it means a lot. Yeah. It's not a consistent or a large activist community in Houston. And whenever we got together with all the, with all the organizations to do this together as a group to acknowledge that we're all fighting the same fight, no matter what demographic of people we are, it, for us as activist organizers gave us a sense of hope, community and connection and love. Second to that, or not even second, but a reality that exists with that is we were able to, if not do a huge change, do a small one and also start a conversation of the problem that exists in the city. I also want to thank like HTU, PERP, PSL. And every other group that came out that day. There is a lot of them. And, um, you know, there, there's, yeah, a, there, there's yeah, definitely there's a, a handful. There's about five or six local organizations that all have, you know, a couple or three or four dozen members. And when you put them all together, it's about 500 people. So, I mean, like, you know, fuck with us if y'all want to. Exactly. But yeah, I was going to say that's, you know, that's why it's, it's so important to, you know, have these connections with all these other organizations that are doing great work. You know, like we said, you know, we're a small group, we're a small group and, you know, every one of our members has their own strengths. Um, you know, we have 10 different committees addressing different things, but when it comes down to it, you know, we're, we're only, you know, a handful of people or so. So it's, it's always good to, to know that 
when we do want to go out to something, when we want to plan something, when we want to take action on an issue, we do have all, all these other groups that will be in solidarity with us and actually help us complete those goals. So that's, that's always great. Absolutely. And that's when I met y'all was over the Labor Day protests that were organized by PERP, but Age of Change and PSL and, you know, other organizations like CAC and other organizations were all on the ground as well. And when we had these marches over Labor Day weekend, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday over the last four days, they uh, we had like 100 people, like more than 100 people. So yeah, age of change might be, you know, like two dozen people or three dozen people, but there's five or six other organizations together that share a lot of the same common goals and, you know, common values. And when we need to go out on the streets and let our voices be heard, you know, we, we can definitely organize, you know, 100 people or so, or a couple hundred people. Yes, yes. And, and definitely, you know, it's important. It's like, even if the ideology of our group doesn't overlap 100% with that of another. It's like, really, when it comes down to it, we all care about social and economic justice for people in our communities. And that's why we're all coming out. So it's like, at the end of the day, we know that like all these other organizations, you know, whatever, whatever we might, um, whatever different approaches we might want to take or, or different tactics we have or different ideas about things we have, when it comes down to it, we're going to be there for each other because we do have that network of support with, with these other groups to make sure it's like, you know, w- when y'all have an event, you're, there, you know, it, it's going to be attended. We're going to be there. We're going to make sure people be there. So like that, that's, it's really, it's really nice to, to, to have, to have that kind of, um, you know, network of activists all, all willing to do the work when, when we need to. Yeah. And I think that's the solidarity that we're trying to build you know, amongst the, you know, activist community here in Houston, yes. just to kind of build it up and build it more. Because like I said, we've got 667 evictions still on the docket and these constables, they refuse to refuse these orders. Like, like they have the ability to refuse these eviction orders as immoral. I think Mm -hmm. the, the sheriff of the County of Chicago, I think Cook County, has gone out and said, like, I'm not doing evictions. I'm refusing these orders because they're immoral. And you get these constables, these fucking bubbas that are, like, out there, these fucking bootlickers, and they they say things like, you know, we got to enforce the law. We got to enforce the law. The judge is telling us to do this. And I'm going, okay, you're being told you have to enforce the law, but is that law moral? I mean, is it moral or, or immoral to put people on the street in the middle of a pandemic yep. when they've lost their job through no fault of their own because the government shut down the economy and refused to give people any support. I mean, like, this is what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. And you've got these law enforcement officers that have mm-hmm. been on the force. They get fat paychecks. They're making 60 grand a year. They get overtime. They've got pensions. Yeah. They've got health care. And they refuse to allow these people to live in their homes. And I just don't understand why yeah. these cops can't do the right thing 
You know, they, they, they claim to be Christians. They claim to love Jesus, but they can't treat their neighbor like they would want to treat their own flesh and blood children. And that kind of shit is unacceptable because we all know what the excuses for the guards at these concentration camps in Germany in the 30s and 40s were. Their excuses were, I was just following orders. Well, you know what? Was that order, was it moral or was it immoral? And everyone's going to tell you the Holocaust was immoral. And we've got constables and sheriffs and law enforcement officers, these bootlickers in the city of Houston that refuse to refuse these immoral orders. And that's the real fucking problem here. And this is where we can get into the cops a little bit because we got some stuff going on with cops. They released this Nicholas Chavez footage yesterday. I'm really not happy with HPD right now. I think you can hear it in my tone how unhappy I am. So if you guys want to let me breathe for a second, y'all could talk about the law enforcement's refusing these immoral orders like we think they should be. And if y'all have any thoughts on the Nicholas Chavez footage, because we are recording on Friday night, September 11th. The footage was released yesterday afternoon. Acevedo put out this fucking propaganda video on YouTube where he does commentary the whole time, setting the stage for how he wants people to believe this thing went down, where he's justifying this execution, even though he fired the four cops. And then we can uh, can talk about the police union contract coming up in the next couple weeks as well. So I'm going to start to breathe, and I'm going to throw it to y'all, and y'all can take it from there for a sec. Yeah, thanks, Zach. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about all that. I definitely, um, I share your frustration with with the fucking, um, you know, the Nicholas Chavez footage coming out. And honestly, that, yeah, even just watching that video is, is, you know, is frustrating enough to watch what they did in that situation and how they shot that man fucking 24 times instead of doing anything. Like, so it's hard, but that that's frustrating enough. And then, yeah, to, to have clicked on that and to, and to have seen Osovato like try to make this fit his narrative to where he gets to add his fucking commentary before and during to so so he can you know so he can frame this in whatever way he wants is complete bullshit and i can't believe they released it like that but yeah it's 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 fucking horrible um it definitely um makes us want to look at and focus on the fact that there is another police union contract about to be passed and um, obviously, you know, the Houston Police Union has been um, basically the reason that we don't get justice on any of these uh, officer and in, officer involved uh, fucking murders, um, officers murdering people. Um, we don't, you know, this is this is the real obstacle to to any kind of um, quote unquote reform or you know any kind of actual um, justice and accountability. And, and oversight in, in, in the department is, is the police unit. So, um, um, so yeah, I was, I was actually reading a little bit into it earlier though. And, um, the two, the two main things in the police, uh, union contract, there's two articles that are really fucked and really, um, helping shield them from, from any kind of accountability. Um, the first one being, um, article 30, which is, this is the, the 48 hours thing, which I'm sure you've heard of. Yeah, it's their statements, yeah. Yeah, so they have 48 hours, basically, to um, prepare their statements, talk to a lawyer and everything, get all that together, um, you know, before they have to give any kind of, yeah, official statement or anything like that, which basically just gives them time to kind of form their own narrative in this complete bullshit. And then um, the Article 26, which grants a committee of officers um, the power to appoint 12 independent hearing examiners, 
who get who have a say in officer discipline and uh, for misconduct, but um, they're not independent at all. Um, half of them are appointed by the police chief and the other half by the union. So basically, you know, when an officer has been disciplined for m- misconduct and they appeal that discipline, um, the cop appointed examiners, they get to make the final call and they're all appointed by them. So it's fucking useless. It's essentially internal affairs. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. But so, yeah, so basically, yeah, with the, with the Chavez thing, I mean, it's, you know, they, they fired the four officers. I'm sure they can, I'm sure they're going to go fucking work in a different department or whatever. I, I have no idea. Cause it doesn't seem like they're doing much to, to prevent that. No, they'll, they'll get recruited by Baytown or some other podunk sheriff that loves that kind of shit. And, uh, yeah, they didn't really lose anything. They didn't really lose anything. Yeah, it was just insane. Um, and but to touch on what you were saying before, yeah, like refusing immoral orders to evict someone, you would think like, yeah, if you were in that situation, you'd want to. But again, it's like for these fucking for these fucking officers, like morality takes a backseat to their fucking you know, comfortability in their jobs and their careers, um, knowing that like everyone there is going to, going to have their back. They, they don't want to, they don't want to rock the boat. And why, and why do that? You know, that's only ever bad news for them. If, if they take a moral stance on something and decide, Oh, you know what? Actually this goes against what I feel is right as a human being. What cop gets to do that and actually, and you know, doesn't get fucking reprimanded by their department. No, they're, they're going to get fired and they're going to lose their pension. Exactly. Yeah, they're not allowed to be moral without consequences. So, no, yeah. because that's why they look for like low IQ people that are direction followers with no exactly. I, with, with no creative thinking skills and no outside the box thinking abilities. That's why they like these people as cops because those are the people that follow orders. Those are the people that don't think for themselves and those are the people that do what they're told and they will never risk their paycheck and their pension and their house for anybody else because it's not about anybody else it's not about serving and protecting it's a job and they only fucking care about themselves and that's why you're never going to see any of these fucking cops refuse these orders now what i did see is there's a constable benny gant who works in alan rosen's office and apparently they feel really really guilty about what they've been doing but not guilty enough to refuse the orders but just guilty enough about the one family they got featured on a national news story mm-hmm. on CNN so they organized to go fund me for that one family that got them like $200,000 which is amazing but like what about the other hundreds of families that got nothing what about the hundreds of families next week that are going to get nothing? Y'all motherfuckers going to do GoFundMe for all these families? They're not because it's not about the families. It's about the optics. So now they can point to this one CNN news story where, oh, look, we got a GoFundMe for this one family and we got them 200000 We're not heartless assholes. We care about people. Fuck that noise, man. They are heartless assholes. And the only thing they fucking care about is their paychecks and their well-being. Serve and protect is fucking bullshit. They don't serve and protect anyone other than themselves and their own bank accounts. They serve and protect the ruling class. Precisely. They protect capital and private property. And that's that's the role of the police. And if anybody thinks it's anything else, it's just wrong. Um, Absolutely. Touching on what you said earlier, it's like, yeah, any, you know, all of the, the most evil things that have ever been carried out in, in, in human history have, have been by people who are fucking following orders. And these guys will just follow orders 
until until they until they can't anymore. They they don't want to think for themselves, and I don't think like if you're saying like um, taking a moral stance against evicting someone from their home should be something you think would be, you know, kind of a like well you know of course of course you do that but no what, what would you, jesus do what would jesus do well i That's, yeah. hey ask these people because they care about that kind of shit what would jesus do they pretend they do but then at the end of the day they, 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 you know what they'd say they'd go uh jesus would yeah, jesus would enforce the law so the way that this country works is like you said optics it has to be convincing enough. It doesn't have to be good or okay or moral even. It just has to be convincing to the working class. And the unfortunate thing about homelessness and evictions and police is that people are taught and groomed to be convinced and they are taught and groomed to be obedient to the way capitalist America wants to work us. So essentially with the whole thing about this pandemic and how the evictions are working, well, people have to make a living, but it's whether or not people are getting evicted, our city council members who are public servants, by the way, would be fine whether the evictions were happening or not even if they were making sure that landlords that live on that money were getting paid or at least being taken care of. They have that money because even though people are losing their homes, we have city council members and we have police officers and we have the White House completely fine, making sure that their lives are being lived. Not a dime, not a penny is being lost for them. And their families are just fine. I mean, again, it's like, you know, people have really taken in the propaganda pretty strongly in this country to where a lot of, a lot of people feel um, that they just, you know, we have to take our oppression in stride. That like, oh, like, well, that's just, that's just what happens. You know, a lot of people become homeless. You know, a lot, of people, a lot of people can't eat. So that's just how it goes. It's like, no, these things are a fucking policy choice. Homelessness is a policy choice. You are, we are choosing to let this happen. Like we, by our city's priorities have made it to where this is a, this is a thing that is actually a reality for people on the streets. So I, I, it, it is one of those things where it's like, you know, people have been so thoroughly you know, made to believe that a lot of this is, is the fault of, of working in poor people, like just not, not doing enough or not, or, or not, you know, taking their own initiative when it's like, especially during a fucking pandemic, like we literally, we need our local government to step up and actually, you know, and actually address these issues now more than ever. But again, that burden is always shift onto, shifted onto the individual to where we're looking at people like, oh, what did you do to end up here? You know? Yeah, I, I think all of that's very well said by both of y'all. I think, I think it's absolutely a policy choice because when you look at every other industrialized country in the world and how they dealt with the pandemic, first of all, they already had universal health care. When you think about Europe, Canada, and Australia, that's the first thing. But then you think about the policy... Real quick, um, 
if if neither of our two parties in this country will support universal health care during a fucking pandemic, which our country is experiencing the brunt of, you know, like then I don't think there's any hope for them actually taking the initiative to make sure that people in this country have health coverage. I don't, I really don't like it. It doesn't seem like it's ever going to be a priority for them if it's not fucking right now, but sorry. The, the United States of America is 4% of the world's population and 25% of the world's deaths right now. Yep. We are 4% of the world's population and 25% of the deaths. So it's absolutely a policy choice, and you're absolutely right. If we're not going to get universal health care during a pandemic, when are we going to get it? And the only thing is we're, it's going to be people power. We're going to have to force these motherfuckers to give it to oh, us. Yeah. So we're not there yet, apparently. Apparently, we've not gotten enough, or we haven't burned enough shit yet, I guess, maybe is what it's at. So it absolutely is a policy choice because every other developed country in the world also decided to cover people's wages during the pandemic and allow people to stay at home. So we've also not done that, and we got a lousy $1,200 stimulus. We got $600 plus-ups for unemployment, which is now expired. And we've essentially been told bootstraps. Bootstraps, America. Tough it up. Handle it on your own. And if you want to talk about the people who are getting that work-from-home leave, it's people. It's, it's about the class. And where you are economically why does someone who's making more money have the opportunity to work from home and make sure that they can take care of their families but someone who isn't making good money and is already struggling to survive and take care of their family or even themselves they can't they don't have that luxury they are working day and night and there's this fallacy of if you work hard enough then you'll get what you deserve because it's the American dream, the white picket fence. Yeah. You can work your ass off and then you're still working your ass off and you're 80 to one. It's just about luck and it's about connections and it's about absolutely your generational wealth, your generational luxuries. It definitely doesn't make sense to um, you know give people this story of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps when we know now that like, you know, I think, Almost half of these jobs that are, have been lost during the pandemic aren't coming back. Like, it's not like this is just a, a temporary thing where it's like, oh, you guys just need to wait it out or just like these. And like she's saying, it's like these are mostly, you know, fucking retail jobs, small businesses, stores, like places where, yeah, you can't work. You're not you're working from home right now. And, and like you were saying earlier, like every other developed country in the world did, we could have prevented this. We could have actually made sure people kept their jobs. We could have nationalized payrolls and made sure we, you know, paid people and, and kept them attached to their jobs to where this wasn't going to happen to where we don't have, you know, unemployment levels that are close to the, you know, or actually I think have exceeded the great depression level at this point. Yeah. It's just insane. Yeah, I think a couple of things to add here. I, I, I want to add something to what Antonella said earlier about class and work from home. They did a segment on Rising today with Crystal and Sager where they had a graph that showed the amount of money people are making and then the amount of percentage of people in each of those groups that's allowed to work from home. And it started at under $20,000 a year and the work from home was like 10%. 
and I think 30,000 was like 20% and 50,000 was like 35%. And essentially every amount of money in the income bracket that you got higher you exponentially had more people working from home. And it ended up with, with over 100,000, over 100,000 was like 60%, and over 200,000 was over 90% working from home. So essentially, in every bracket of income that people were getting more money, the higher the probability of them staying at home. And I think there is a little bit of genetics with, you know, black, Latino, Asians, indigenous people having susceptibility to the virus, but that's not really what's going on here. What's going on here is that those are the people that are disproportionately in the working class and they have jobs that are not allowing them to work from home. These people are bus drivers. These people are trash collectors. These people are janitors. These people are secretaries. These people are working in schools as cafeteria workers that have been serving communities food this entire pandemic. And these people do not have the luxury of working from home. And that's really what you're seeing here is I think there's a little bit of genetic disposition, but I think a lot of this is more of a class issue where people that are making less money do not have the luxury of working from home. Yeah. And then, you know, we talk about, you know, those opportunities um, being more available to already wealthy and well-connected people on a, we can talk about that on a larger scale when it comes to just the bailout in general, like, you have all of these companies, you know, these, these, you know, huge, um, um, these huge companies that are getting, you know, just the slush funds of bailout money, you know, like trillions and trillions of dollars being pumped into the market. And then who's losing out? Like, who are the, you know, then there's people about to be evicted. Who's, who are those people? The people who, you know, don't have the ability to stay home and still make money. And like, we're having all these people, like, you know, Main Street's losing out, all these working class and poor people are being evicted and, you know, losing their jobs, you know, losing their health care during a pandemic. And then we have, you know, the wealthiest people in, our, in the country getting exponentially more wealthy during the pandemic. And it's just like, just like if you couldn't see, you know, wealth inequality and like class dynamics in this country, you should definitely be able to see it now. It's fucking on clear display. Yeah, I think there's absolutely no doubt that this pandemic has really pulled the mask off of American capitalism and shown America to be just really how hollow and empty it is right now. And I say this a lot, and people that listen to my show regularly, they're, they're going to get sick and tired of me saying this shit, but America's a fucking failed state. America's yeah. a failed state. And if you take away six industries, there's only about six industries where if you take away Wall Street and you take away Hollywood and you take away Silicon Valley, and you take away the health and medical sector, and you take away the military industrial complex, and you take away oil and gas, the fuck are you left with in this country? Yeah. There ain't nothing left. There's nothing left. If you take those six away, America is a hollowed, emptied out, third world failed state. Yeah. And I think that is really... Yeah, man, it fucking sucks, and it's depressing, and it's really, really negative, and the outlook in the short term is not good, and I think, I think this kind of gets into our last question a little bit, is the fact that electoral politics, like, I don't know about you guys, but for me, the outcome of Biden and Trump really doesn't even really make a difference to me at this point, because mm -hmm. what, what I've realized in the last couple of years 
is that what we need to be doing, and I'm saying we as progressives or leftists or whatever you want to call us in this group, is that local politics is where it's at. And what we really need to be focusing on is city council races and DA races and mayoral races and local races, and then go from there and then build that up and then take power and seize it locally and then get our point across. Because like us wasting time on Bernie Sanders' campaign this spring and worrying about Biden and Trump, like we're not going to have any impact on any of that. We're so small potatoes, small fish, whatever the saying is, in that arena that we really don't even have, we don't really have any kind of impact on that. And honestly, they don't want our impact. They don't, they don't want to hear from us. They don't care about us. They don't yeah. want us involved in that. Exactly. So I really think that what I've realized in the last couple of years is that getting involved in electoral politics locally with city council and the mayor's race and the DA's races yeah. and locally as much as possible is really where our bread is going to be buttered in the next four or five years when we start thinking about real change. But, you know, we just had a city council election last December. We got three and a half more years until another city council race. So it's what I'm getting at in a really long-winded, inefficient way is that what we can do in the meantime while we're waiting on the opportunity for the electoral change to come with city council and the mayors being changed and getting Turner Mm -hmm. out of there and, you know, getting a different DA in, maybe someone like Audia Jones or someone like that. And what we can do in the meantime is still try and have direct action, mutual aid to our fellow men and women on the ground in Houston. And that's kind of what leads us into the last question is really what y'all's flagship program. I can't even talk what y'all's flagship program is, which is the homeless outreach that y'all do every Thursday downtown. And I actually went out a couple of days or yesterday, I guess with y'all and, um, Man, that is just such an amazing experience, you know, going out with y'all to downtown. So if you guys could just kind of tell the narrative, tell the story about what y'all do on Thursdays, because we really want to end the interview and the show on like the hopeful optimism and the call to action. So if Trevor Antonella, if you guys could kind of describe what y'all do on Thursdays and kind of how that works and tell the listeners a little bit about it, because I really just think that is such an amazing thing that y'all have got going with y'all's Thursday Unhoused Outreach. Yeah, so before we get started talking about um, how our day goes day of, I want to talk about a little bit the funds we get, how we get them. Essentially, we started out out of pocket. So everybody in the organization would pay out of pocket. And then we started to figure out that's not um, as effective. So we decided to open a Venmo for Age of Change, we posted on all of our socials, our Twitter, our Facebook, our Instagram, and the community really showed up for us and they funded, we get it maybe at least like $200 a week. And that's a lot of money. Um, so we, whenever we go shopping, um, we really do like to record everything that we're buying. Uh, once we have it scanned, we like to record um, the prices of everything and how much everything costs and we also like to be transparent in um, how much money we are getting in relation to how much we're spending so people know that every single dime they give to us is going to people struggling with homelessness and not just us 
Um, none of the money we use is for our other activism. It goes solely, solely to our homeless outreach. Um, what our day normally looks like is day before, so Wednesday, we have two or three people that will go do all the shopping, um, make sure that they have everything on camera, um, of, again, for the sake of transparency. Um, and then we'll have those, every item separate. And then on Thursday, everybody will meet at the stage at Discovery Green. And there together, we pack up the bags and we make our care packages and everybody almost like just we have like a little assembly line that goes on there everybody wears their gloves so we make sure that we're not like touching people's personal things it, and it's actually like one of the coolest parts too because it, it's almost like the hype part where everyone's like okay we're gonna go do this <laughs> once we have all those ready we pick maybe two people with a vehicle we pack those vehicles up everybody carpools to our first location city hall at this point people know us which is awesome like we know their names they know our names so they'll come and like they'll get excited um uh and then sometimes we'll still go around because there are some people that are just like no nah, i don't really feel like get getting up right now and then we'll just go around and passing them out and we do record those parts but um mostly i feel like to inspire other people to come and join and help us out with that um, so essentially like what we do is we have a few people that will go pass around the care packages and then we'll have a set of people wearing gloves that will pass out food with plates and napkins. Um, we also have another set of people who will ask, what is it that you need that will be more beneficial for you on a weekly basis at this time? And um, we are slowly leaning towards being able to get people personal items, like things that they need specifically. And uh, two more locations to go to is Fannin and Prairie and Brazos and Lamar. Brazos and Lamar is a little less populated, but there are always people there. So we do like to hit that spot too. The beautiful thing about the homeless outreach, I think, is essentially, you know, it, it's definitely awesome to help them. But my favorite thing, and I feel like I can speak for everybody in Age of Change, that our favorite thing about the homeless outreach is giving them a sense of humanity. It's almost, ang it almost angers me to hear them tell me and everybody else, they thank us just for looking at them. Like something as small as acknowledging their existence, they thank us. Um, and we make it very clear that there's no reason you have to thank us for that. That is the very, very least we could do. Um, and slowly, you know, we're building relationships with these people and eventually like that. I, thank you so much for having us on here. We we're like super excited. Hopefully this will get people, you know, awake and people want to join and help and donate, even if they can't make it, um, that they'll be able to help out in some way. A absolutely. And I, I came out with y'all, uh, this past Thursday, a couple of days ago, and it was just honestly just such an inspiring, you know, afternoon. So I showed up with you guys at Discovery Green at five and helped, you know, organize the care packages and stuff like that. And you're absolutely right, because going downtown and just just having a conversation with these people and learning their names and asking them how their day is and um, just taking a few minutes to check on them and ask them if there's anything that they need and ask them how they're doing. It, it really just means 
so much to them. And now you guys have been out there for what, like a month now, like four weeks in a row. And you're getting to the point where you guys are building a reputation and people are expecting y'all on Thursdays. Like, Hey, are the kids coming with pizza on Thursday? <laughs> like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's really, really cool because it's gotta be the highlight of their week to have people that come out and know their names and interact with them and talk with them and ask them how they're doing and give them a hot meal and a cold water or a Powerade or whatever. And just really just have a conversation with them. And, oh yeah. And that, and that is so, that's so unique for how they get treated by most human beings that they interact with on a daily basis. Yes. Most people ignore them. They look the other way. They shun them. Um, these people yep. have told us that they don't even have access to corner stores and grocery stores mm -hmm. and marts like that. They're getting essentially ostracized and it's just really, really sad. And honestly, I, I just hope anybody that's listening that lives, you know, in the city of Houston, you guys really need to, to, to come out on a Thursday if you can, because honestly, I think it'll change your life. Please like, do. Really yes. Will. Um, absolutely. So yeah. Trevor, was there anything you wanted to add kind of about the dignity of, of really the people down there? And I think also you would, you admit wanted to mention some of the city ordinances and maybe the laws going on with downtown. Yeah. Um, definitely. Thanks so much, Zach, for, for coming out. And like, we're so grateful that you're going to be a part of our organization and be out there every Thursday with us helping these people. It's like, it means a lot for not only, you know, having us on to talk about it, but actually like showing up every week and wanting to be a part of it is so cool so thanks for that and um we're definitely encouraging anyone who hears this to please come and meet us um so you can be a part of it as well um but yeah like like you're saying uh just these um you know for for unhoused people their very existence is is criminalized in, in a lot of ways and it's like we, we hear all the time you know we're, we're, we're talking to people it's like we want to know their stories we want to know like you know exactly what is your situation and like that's you know that's really the best part of being out there is is learning and getting to know um everyone's all these different people's situations but a lot of what we hear um about their current circumstances is just how hard it is to actually live on the streets and like you know all the places that they're not allowed to go um you know all of the areas that like you know, they're, they're literally not allowed to either stand in or like, like you're saying earlier stores that won't, that won't let them go around. And, um, it's, it's just, yeah, it's, it's horrible to hear, but, um, we actually are, um, like Antonella was saying, taking like a personal interest in the people that we're meeting and, and, and assisting every week. And um, we're doing this and like asking them, like, what is it that you personally need? And like, what are your hobbies? Like what, you know, what interests you? Like, what, how can we help you in a, in a way that's like personal to you? And um, that's, that's one of the more beautiful things about it, I feel like. And, and really homelessness outreach is like one of the reasons, um, one of the main reasons I wanted to get so involved in the organization um, in general is because, you know, I, I've always felt like it's, it's, it's just terrible um, how we dehumanize um, unhoused people and like, and yeah, and, and, and just, you know, not, not that many people, like you're saying, really take the time to look at someone who's living on the street and think about it like, that could be someone in my family, like that could be me tomorrow, you know, and that's, and that's how we need to think about this. We have to have, you know, solidarity with, with all these people who, who are, you know, in, in so many ways, exactly like us. And like, I know from my own, like, family experiences, you know, with, um, you know, people in my own family being unhoused at certain times that, like, this is something that is not far from any of us. Oh, yeah. So that's really important to know and understand. 
I, I absolutely agree. And I think it's really, really important because I think there's still a lot of people out there that have this stigma to, towards the unhoused that, oh, they're all on drugs, they all have substance abuse issues, or they all are alcoholics, or they all have mental health issues or whatever. And the reality is that a lot of these people don't have any of those issues. A lot of these people have never used drugs. They don't drink. You know, they don't have any yeah. mental health issues. They're just victims of the cruelty of American capitalism oh, and the lack of safe social safety nets in this country. And I think Trevor said it really well, like, uh, there's a lot of people that, that it, it doesn't take a lot to become unhoused in this country. You know, there's a lot of people that are a blown tire away or a medical emergency away from bankruptcy and being unhoused. And that, 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 that's really the sad part of it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, essentially our goal is to raise money to provide food, water, and necessities for our friends living on the streets. You know, um, we have been fortunate enough to help, you know, like 30 to 50 people every Thursday. Most of our packages include like pizza um, or any kind of other food, water, feminine products, toothbrushes, tissues, wipes, deodorant, soap bars, razors, face masks, gloves. I could go on and on. Ponchos for rainy days and uh, bags that they can have all their stuff in. We also, our main thing now we want to start diving more into the humanity aspect where we can ask them once we have you know the funds and the traction and the mass population of people who are willing to come and help we are trying to lean more into maybe finding out their hobbies and bringing them supplies so that they can enjoy themselves so they can have those kind of luxuries in life and not just survive we also want to start like an outreach program to where we have obviously people on the ground um, doing the hands-on labor. And then we also have people who are a little bit more um, personable who can just talk to them and, you know, get to know these people on a, a personal level. And it's very cool to see how different their energy is whenever we're around. Like you said, um, we are probably the highlight of their week. Mm -hmm. But I think for a lot of us at Age of Change, that's the highlight of our week. You know, we spend every day kind of just like going with the motions of like, it's easy to become numb. And then going to this homeless outreach, I feel like gives at least a few people a sense of purpose and a sense of, of I have the ability to help and I'm doing it. Yeah, I, I, I can attest to the fact that that was the most fun I've had since the pandemic hit in January. And there's, there's no doubt about it. It's not even close. Awesome. Absolutely. And I, I think the other thing is when we're talking about these care packages that we're putting together with the toothbrushes and the toothpaste and the soap and the wipes and the masks and the sanitizer and the ponchos and all this kind of stuff. And then the money that goes towards buying the granola bars and the water and the food and the Powerades and everything. All of this money is being tracked and traced and you guys are transparent with it. And I think that is so, so important that when you go to y'all's social media platforms, like your YouTube channel or your Twitter page or whatever. You guys are putting out these videos that show how you're spending every dollar and you're accounting for every dollar, every dime, every penny that y'all get in donations is going directly to the unhoused. And um, you also mentioned that you get large dollar donations from other small grassroots local organizations in Houston. And that kind of speaks to the solidarity that Trevor was mentioning as well with the evictions protest over on Chimney Rock. 
where you know you're getting a hundred dollars or two hundred dollars and essentially like a block grant from from these other organizations. Um, so speak to the transparency of the money and how it's all accounted for just one more time and then speak to the solidarity with these other groups that are supporting y'all as well in y'all's activism. Right. So we do have like, you know, your average person that is like, wow, it's really great what they're doing. I'm going to send them some money. Um, and, you know, we, we get I feel like $20 is a pretty big donation for just your average person because most people don't donate anything. Um, and then we also have been very fortunate for some coalitions and like other grassroots organizations in Houston that have reached out to us personally and have sent us money because they are inspired by what we're doing on the ground. And yeah, like, I mean, like you said, it, for us, transparency is really important because not only do we want to um, let people know that we are making sure that we're using their funds for what they're sending their money for, but also so we can, hold that precedent for ourselves to hold ourselves accountable, make sure that nobody in the organization is ever turning the other way in regards to, oh, we can use this to buy a few signs for our next protest. We set that precedent for ourselves so we know every single dime that gets sent for us is for our friends living on the streets and only for them. Yeah, I think the whole thing is just absolutely amazing and incredible and just really inspiring. And I'm not blowing smoke when I say this. That was the most alive <laughs> I've felt since the pandemic hit, honestly, going out there and helping y'all out and participating and seeing their faces light up because they realize it's Thursday and, and the kids, that they don't, they don't, they don't know y'all are age of change. That I think. They just say y'all are the kids, but they're, they're bringing pizza. They've got hot pizza and water and like they're coming to expect it and y'all are becoming mm -hmm. dependable. And that just is really, really cool to be able to give them a sense of hope and to give them something to look forward to when reality, their day to day is really, really hard. But if you can just kind of take one moment of that week and make it happy for them and they know that someone cares about them and they know that someone's going to be there for them, that oh yeah, difference in the world. And that's really what it's all Absolutely. about. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny and I love it because of the personal relationships that we are building with them. Some of them have even shown up to our events and our protests separate from our homeless outreach. I know that there was, uh, it was two men and one woman that went to our last uh, protest with Pert and it was so funny to see them. They're like, oh, we love you guys. Thanks so much for doing this. I, they, they're, they're very supportive. And, like, it, it's, it's just awesome. Like, that's my favorite part of it. I think I can speak for everybody about that is just building relationships with them. Because, like, I feel like just, like, we can help them. We can also learn from them. And they can help us help them. Absolutely. There's – um. <laughs> Yeah, these are people with experiences and values and insights that that have that have value to us in society. And, you know, that's something that some people forget sometimes. So oh, yeah. I just think it's the whole thing is just absolutely amazing. And I, I just really I can't vouch for you guys enough. And I cannot emphasize enough the amazing work y'all are doing and how much y'all need to be supported. If people can come out physically at 5 p.m. at Discovery Green on Thursdays in downtown Houston. Like, we would love for anyone to – I'm going to be out there every Thursday from now until the day yes. I die. Yes. So, that is yes. happening. Um, 
And I just hope anyone that has the ability to come out and, and help, like you are more than welcome. You're going to be needed. You're going to be, you're going to be participating and you, we need people out there. But at the same time, if you can't come out there, like we need you to get on Age of Changes, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram so that you can donate money, $5 here, $10 there, $20 there if you can. We know it's tough times. We know a lot of people are unemployed. And a lot of people are going through tough times. But if you do have, you know, some spare money and some money that you could, you know, donate, this is going to be money going to a good cause and you do not have to worry about it going to some bureaucracy or paying for some stuff that you're not comfortable with or whatever. The money is going to the unhoused and it is absolutely, it's, I don't want to say it's changing their lives, but it's, it's giving them some hope and some optimism when a lot of them are really struggling through some pretty tough times right now. And that, and again, like we kind of talked about yesterday is the electoral politics (laughs) You know, when, when Bernie's campaign ended, you know, a lot of us were volunteering. I I volunteered on the Bernie's campaign. I've donated to Bernie's campaign. I block walked and everything. (laughs) And that was where a lot of my activist energy was going pretty much from Thanksgiving and really, I guess the whole summer, last summer, summer of 2019, really through Thanksgiving up until the spring when he suspended his campaign. And I think a lot of us on the left, the progressive left, whatever you, whatever you want to call us, I think a lot of us were kind of directionless and didn't really know where to go. But I really do think that yeah. staying local and staying active and doing what we can when we can. So right now, there don't seem to be a whole lot of electoral options for us other than voting green or you know having like a protest vote of abstaining or something like that. But yeah. In the meantime, you know, while we're looking, or I guess while we're working towards the electoral change that we're hoping to get at city council and the DA's office and the mayoral's race here locally in Houston, because I really think, I really think that's where our energy needs to be focused in the next five to 10 years is locally as much as possible, because that's where a small amount of people can have, you know, the inordinate amount of, you know, impact and really focusing on local politics, but also in the meantime, taking direct action to help, you know, our fellow men and women on the streets that are unhoused right now when we can. Yeah, Yeah, uh, definitely. I a hundred percent agree, you know, where, you know, where electoral politics has, has failed us. And like, you know, we, 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 we can't depend on that for helping people in our own community. It's just like, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, we have to do that work ourselves. You know, if we want to see any change occur, we're going to have to start on the ground in our communities because yeah, we, we, and we got to be hands-on about it because when, when it comes down to it, you know, um, I, I'm not, I'm not expecting, you know, our, our elected officials to really step up to the plate for, for the unhoused people in Houston. And I mean, that's just something that we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to step up, step up to the plate and do it on our own. So. And if you want to like bring it into all the other social issues that people are talking about there's a certain demographic of people that are on the streets that don't line up with the population in houston um so there's there's definitely definitely like a um class disparity and even a racial disparity and just disproportionately how people are being affected and different demographics of people and at the end of the day yeah we can't expect i mean sylvester turner to be like oh you know what let's take care of our people whenever there's a federal rule that he, he's got to take care of his tenants and stuff and he's still kicking them out either way so if we can't even expect that from him very much less we can expect him to take care of our friends on the streets 
But, you know, it starts with people like us, like you, Zach, and anybody else who has donated, everybody who has spoken out about it, other people who have different things in regards to helping our friends on the streets. So, yeah, uh, I definitely I definitely agree. I think it's a collective effort. Yeah, I, I think it's it's definitely not mutually exclusive. Like, we don't have to just focus on electoral politics or just focus on, you know, on the ground activism outreach we can do both we can do both at the same time yeah um, absolutely absolutely um antonella do you want to take an opportunity to share some of the social media information and where people can find um age of change yeah absolutely so our twitter is age of change and the o and of is going to be a zero on Facebook, it's Age of Change Association. And on Instagram, it's age.of.change. Absolutely. And I would recommend people find your YouTube channel as well, because that's where Maul is uploading the videos of the homeless outreach, which shows everything from like step one to step 50 of everything, where you're collecting the money, where you're getting the, the things at the store and you're building the care packages and then you're distributing them and giving the food and everything. And it really just, it gives you a really good idea of what it's like to be out there for about three hours, really. And if you watch those videos and you're not affected by that and you don't have the desire to help in any kind of way, then you need to look yourself in the mirror there. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, our, our YouTube is Age of Change Houston. There you can find some of our videos. And even like, you know, uh, I, I, I want to uh, encourage the community to, you know, give us ideas or if like there's something that you think we could do better. Um, like, please feel free to give us that constructive criticism because the better that we can be for everybody, you know, the more we're helping as well. I think that's all very, very well said. And I, I, again, I cannot co-sign and vouch for you guys strong enough. Everything about you guys has been absolutely top-notch. You guys are so energetic and so passionate about affecting change in multiple ways. I mean, local electoral politics, um, direct action, mutual aid with the outreach on the streets, your direct action protest at the eviction protest on at Chimney Rock. And the, the fact that you guys have only been around for about three months really is absolutely incredible for what y'all have accomplished. And y'all should just be so proud of yourselves for what y'all have done so far. And honestly, I'm really excited to see where y'all are going to be in a year from now. Like if y'all have already <laughs> done all this in three months, like, holy shit, like where are we going to be in a year from now? Like, are we going to have like 50 or a hundred people every Thursday with buying I know, 100 I, little Caesars I, pizzas? Better, like, yes, absolutely. I, I definitely like, I'm, I'm so grateful for this organization, but I definitely want to give a shout out to, you know, a lot of just your average people in Houston that are allowing us to help as much as we are, you know, like it, it's so awesome. It's such a collective effort and I will second you. I am so excited to see where we will be in a year and we will continue this momentum. We will continue this traction and we will continue fighting and we will continue helping. So this momentum isn't going to die down as We've said before, it's a movement, not a moment. Yeah, this, I mean, I'm super excited for what's to come. Absolutely. You know, I think a lot of us have been in really dark places, you know, since Bernie's campaign and the pandemic and everything going on. Absolutely. But I'm telling you, when I went out on Thursday with y'all, that was the most fun I'd had in like nine months. I'm so happy and, to hear that. And I just cannot tell people for like the fourth time now how much y'all need to come out on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at Discovery Green if you can. Yes. 
And even if you can't, let's say that you work every Thursday in the evening and you're never going to be able to make it. If you could just give five or $10 or whatever yes. you can, like that money is going directly to the unhoused and you can still have an impact without physically driving into downtown. Yeah, like that is, that is making think, just as much of an impact. Yeah. I think that's a great point you're making, Zach. Everybody, anybody who wants to come and help, you will be needed and your work and your effort will not only be acknowledged, but it will be greatly appreciated, not just by Age of Change, but the people that we're helping. So if you have that desire and that fire to come out, please do. You are more than welcome. And then like, and then also like you're saying, you know, if you're not able to, I mean, a lot of people can't make the time every Thursday to actually come and put themselves out there on the streets with us uh, doing this work. So like you're saying, donating, a small donation, you know, helps out just as much as anything. And that literally enables us to be able to help the people that we are helping. So. Absolutely. I think that's all very well said. Antonella and Trevor, y'all are just such amazing people and y'all have been so inspiring <laughs> for me. And I'm just so honored and privileged to have like a local grassroots you know, community activist organization that was willing to come on and, you know, to give so much of y'all's time to me for this interview and for my listeners to really, you know, tell what y'all are doing because y'all have such an interesting story and you're doing so many interesting things and such good work. And you've only been around for a couple of months, which is really the incredible part. So really like <laughs> what you guys are going to be able to accomplish in one year, two years, three years, even five years down the road. Like I am super excited to see what y'all become. And like, Obviously, I'm a member now. I'm signed up. Yeah. Like, I'm yes, not going to be yes, there. So, are. like, I'm going to be participating. And <laughs> it's just a really, really good time. And everyone is super nice. And it really is – if you're a leftist in Houston and you're looking for some positivity and, like, a real community to build around, come out on Thursday's Discovery Green 5 o'clock and, and, and you'll see what it's about. It's just it's, – it's, it's really, really inspiring stuff. So, Antonella and Trevor, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me and my listeners on New Deal Democracy. And I, I hope we can have you on in the future, maybe sometime in the spring, we can have y'all back on and you could update us with how y'all have grown and, you know, different projects that y'all are updating and modifying and adding to, you know, y'all's repertoire and everything like that. So again, just thanks so much for everything. You guys are just doing amazing work. And I just really encourage anyone listening to support Age of Change any way they can. And again, just one more time, Antonella and Trevor, thank you both so much for being here. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Zach. Um, it's, it's been great talking to you and um, it's super great to have you be a part of what we're, what we're doing now and being actually a member of Age of Change with us. And uh, we'll see you every Thursday. So yeah. it's awesome. Absolutely. Thank you so much for giving us a platform. And um, we're just as grateful being part of your podcast as you are having us as part of it. You know, I'm super excited to be working with you and I just really appreciate you giving us a platform. Thank you so much. Yeah. I think it goes both ways. I think, you know, it, it definitely reciprocates. Um, with yeah, both absolutely. Of us. and it's just been really an honor and a pleasure and it's just been great working with y'all and you know, I'll see y'all Thursday. How's that sound? <laughs> awesome. We'll okay. Thursday, we'll see you man. Thursday then. Thank you. Awesome. So much. Thank, thank you guys so much. It's been amazing. Yeah. Likewise.
Welcome back to New Deal Democracy. I'm your host, Zach Hill, and we're going to jump into a little bit of news here. Really kind of two stories I wanted to touch on for this episode. And uh, the first one is these wildfires going on out in California. And part of the story is that it's not even really just California. They're also having fires in Oregon, which is... Pretty rare, apparently. I'm not from there, but um, apparently it is very unusual to have fires that far north. And, you know, this they're, they're saying this is going to be a, a worse fire season than they had last year. And last year was worse than the year previous, and the year previous was worse than the year previous. So every year it's getting worse and worse and worse with these fires in California, and you're seeing the same thing in Australia, and I, y'all might not realize it, but that was this same year that when the fires in Australia were going on. Um, so, and, they're, they're, like, it really is, it just seems apocalyptic at this point when you think about the pictures coming out of San Francisco with the orange sky in the middle of the day. It looks like fucking Blade Runner. This shit is... Just absolutely terrifying. And a couple days ago, they had literally a fire tornado in, I believe it was Oregon, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a tornado of fire, and literally just, it's a wall of fire in this tornado that literally just goes through and just burns and destroys an entire town. And it's absolutely terrifying. So, I think this is just really important to talk about because it's getting a little bit of national attention but the the thing for me that really scares me is how every year it's getting worse you know 2016 was worse than 2015 2017's worse than 16 2018 is worse than 17 and 19 and 20 uh last year they had or i guess two years ago in 18 they had the campfire which was really shocking just at how how fast it spread and the amount of lives that were lost and Again, they're predict- they've already had, I, th- I believe, double-digit lives lost this year. They're predicting more than have ever been lost before. So every year it's getting worse and worse and worse. And I'm going to take the time to talk about this, this fireman program that they've got, this conservation camp program that they have with these, these inmates. And if you're not familiar, this is a program where they take inmates from California and they put them in these firefighter programs, and I guess they train them up a little bit, and they send them out to fight fires. And these are people that are incarcerated in the state of California, and they pay them $3.63 a day uh, as a flat rate, which is (laughs) beyond... (laughs) Yeah, you heard me right. $3.63 per day. That's not per hour, ladies and gentlemen. That's per day. And... You know, the government of California is generous enough to give these people an extra bonus $1 a day when they're on the front lines actually fighting a fire. Like, I'm not making this shit up. They get a base pay of $363 per day, and they get a hazard bonus of $1 a day to fight these fires. And the real scandal here is that a lot of people are complaining, I guess, like there was a guy from the Department of Corrections in an article in the New York Times, and he was upset that Gavin um, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, had allowed 
a lot, of, I think thousands, I can't even remember the number off the top of my head, but it was thousands of prisoners that he released early from the state of California's you know, correctional system because of the fear of COVID. So, I mean, he was trying to release nonviolent offenders so that he could, you know, slow the spread of COVID and have, like, lower population density in these prisons. And one of the side effects, secondary effects, of all these people being released is that now, apparently, the inmate firefighter corps have been decimated, apparently. This is the this is the way they're phrasing this, is that how dare Gaviner Newsom... Gaviner, that's a combination of Governor and Gavin. How dare... Governor Gavin Newsom released these prisoners when he should have kept them incarcerated so that we could pay them $4.63 per day to fight these fires. I mean, this is what people are actually fucking saying, and this shit is absolutely ridiculous to me, that they're blaming these inmates being released for the reason that California can't control these fires this year, but really, it's the fucking government of California that doesn't want to pay these people you know, a living wage when they're risking their lives, they've had a handful of these people have died in the last five years. I think it was five or six of these inmates have actually perished getting paid $4.63 per day to fight these fires. And it's absolutely absurd. And apparently this is one of the reasons that they're struggling this year with these fires is the fact that they have less inmates to, to use and abuse to put on these fire lines. And this is one of the reasons they're having trouble containing these fires is they have less prisoners to use and abuse because Gaviner, Gaviner, I did it again. Governor Gavin Newsom released these prisoners early and there are some people upset about it. The people that were upset about were, were Department of Corrections officials. They were not firefighters because most people know that firefighters actually care about people and they wouldn't say anything so heartless. It was it was definitely a Department of Corrections official that had that quote in the New York Times article. And I think it's also interesting to note that Kamala Harris, I'm going to I'm going to go there again. She was Attorney General of California and she was notorious for locking up nonviolent drug offenders and these are people that would be, you know, given the opportunity to participate in these fire programs. And the reason this is kind of the insinuation here, is that the reason Kamala Harris wanted more people in prison, the reason she wanted to incarcerate more people, the reason she liked having more people in prison, was not just private prison so that her donors could make more money off of these inmates, but really so that they could use these prisoners, they could use these inmates for slave labor, essentially. So they could pay them only $4.63 a day and use them for fire fire protection to have them put out these fires under these um conservation programs with the department of corrections inmates from california so this is absolutely what's going on right now kamala was absolutely instrumental in this and if i'm being real paying someone four dollars and 63 cents a day when you put them in prison on some trumped up bullshit to begin with so you can use and abuse them to fight fires because you're too fucking cheap to pay people a living wage to fight these fires that's the most neoliberal response to firefighting i've ever heard in my life and you know it's really not even just the fires because i live in houston and from houston to new orleans really with the golden triangle of beaumont port arthur and orange along the gulf coast there we dodged a bullet with hurricane laura hurricane laura ended up being not as devastating as they were predicting because they were predicting 
you know, 15, 20 feet of storm surge and a Cat 5 coming in. And you're looking at 150 mile an hour winds with 12 feet, 15 feet of storm surge. They were calling that unsurvivable. And luckily, it seems like Laura wasn't as strong as they had predicted. But the point that I'm getting at here is that all of these events, whether it be the fires in Australia, the fires in California, the derecho in Iowa, the the, the hurricanes that hit, hit the Gulf, you know, five, six, eight times a year now. What happened with Hurricane Dorian that hit the Bahamas last year? Or was that two years ago now? Oh my gosh. I don't even know. But my point is that every one of these, every year it's getting worse. It's getting more and more extreme. It's getting worse and worse. We're seeing large chunks of Greenland and Antarctica just melting away. And... It kind of gets to what my, my point is here is that the global warming is getting worse and worse and worse and we're not doing anything about it at the federal level and pulling out of the climate the Paris Climate Accords is only hurting the international solidarity on the climate issue and uh, say what you want about the Green New Deal. I like aspects of it. I'm obviously a big fan of green energy and conservation, but if you've seen Michael Moore's new film, Planet of the Humans, we're not going to be able to survive on a electric uh, grid based on solar and wind energy alone. It's just not feasible. And the only two options you're looking at, if you, because, again, what everyone will tell you is that the sun and wind are not reliable. You've got things like when it's not windy or, you know, this thing called night where the sun goes down. These things happen. Or, you know what, another thing called a cloud. Clouds happen, people. So wind and solar are not dependable enough for an entire grid. And you really are only left with two options. And that would be uh, natural gas or nuclear. And natural gas is coming from fracking, hydraulic fracturing. And we've really got to get away from that in the next... 10 years, they're probably going to say 20, but it needs to be closer to 10. And that means the grid is going to have to be go nuclear. And it's, it's going to have to go nuclear. And really, it, it's really the only option. It's the only option if you want to get off hydrocarbons and fossil fuels. Because wind and solar is not enough to sustain a grid. You, 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 it's, it's, it's not even feasible. It's not even feasible. So really, the only thing you're left with is nuclear. And, you know, the Green New Deal does not have nuclear energy in it. And that's kind of part of the part of what I'm getting at here is that there's a lot of leftists and environmentalists that are very much against nuclear energy. But then these are the same fucking morons that are in favor of burning what they call renewables, which is really just fucking trees. So they'd rather burn trees than have a couple of fuel nuclear spent rods, essentially, of energy. So... It, the whole thing is frustrating to me a little bit, but I think we really need to think about nuclear energy. In fact, there was a Reddit AMA from a guy who has 71 years of experience working in the nuclear energy field here in the United States, working for the Department of Energy. And if, if, if you're someone on Reddit, just you might want to check that out. That had a lot of interesting points. And... Um, Someone brought up the point. I thought about this too, but you know, I'm a history major. I'm a moron, so this is kind of proves you know how dumb I am. But someone had asked the question that I'd thought of before, like, why can't we just shoot this stuff into outer space? Talking about the spent energy, the the, the depleted uranium that would be used 
in these nuclear reactors. And essentially, if you put these on like a SpaceX rocket or if you launch, if you try and launch these out into deep space, then it's so inefficient because each one of these launches is like $50 million and you can only get so much on each rocket. And then the real nightmare scenario is that if you have, God forbid, some kind of an explosion or an accident where it blows up in launch, like the Challenger or something like that, um, then you've got a real, real environmental disaster where you've got you know, nuclear fallout essentially being being dropped into the upper atmosphere and it's going to land, you know, it's going to pretty much coat the earth. And that that's a horrible, horrible environmental disaster, the likes of which the planet's never seen. So that's not an option. So the only option you have is this really deep underground disposal, this, this deep underground disposal, which they call deep geologic disposal. And they're working on a project in Finland right now. But a lot of the conversation on Reddit revolved around disposal of the spent nuclear energy and like what you do with the the waste, the nuclear waste essentially is what it's going to be. And the guy said one interesting that I'll that I'll throw out there. He said that for every human being in the United States, so essentially like one person in a Western democracy, for them to have an entire lifetime of energy. Okay, an entire lifetime of energy for one person in like a Western democracy would be would produce two Coca-Cola cans of nuclear waste for one person for an entire lifetime. And the point that I'm making is that is a very, very small amount of waste that would be created by nuclear power. So I really think lefties you got to get on board with nuclear it's the only way forward france has been doing it since the 70s and honestly even france is getting away from it which doesn't make any sense to me germany is like the first country that started with nuclear energy back in the 50s and now they're getting away from it and they're going back to strip mining so i'm not even really sure what germany's doing right now with that but just i wanted to do a segment on the environment and just just how bad everything's gotten and really kind of looking forward with the Green New Deal and kind of my number one issue is really that it just doesn't include nuclear and that a lot of these lefties are okay with burning renewables, which is just fucking trees and it's just disgusting. So check out that Michael Moore documentary if you're interested in Planet of the Humans because it talks about the electrical grid and wind and power and how it's just not a long-term alternative or it's not a long-term solution for getting off of fossil fuels and hydrocarbons. So yeah, interesting stuff there. Welcome back to New Deal Democracy. We're going to jump into some presidential election talk here. And interesting news, I'm recording on Sunday evening, and there's a Washington Post article where Bernie is apparently communicating with the Biden campaign that he's worried. He's worried that Biden's not doing enough to really lock this thing down in November and Bernie is apparently warning the Biden campaign that he's not doing enough, and he thinks he's got a chance to get taken by Trump. And I think this is obvious. Anyone that's paying attention realizes that Trump's never been dead in this thing, and that it's pretty much a toss-up right now, I think, um, if I'm being honest. Even though the polls tend to skew a little bit towards Biden right now, the uh, the main concern with the the Biden campaign, and this is one of the things that, that apparently Bernie and his campaign spokesman, Fez Shakir, who's been on Rising before, apparently their concern is the Latino outreach. 
that um, obviously Chuck Rocha and the people in Nevada and Iowa really as well um, really, really mastered and really got down their techniques. So one of the main things that apparently Bernie is warning the Biden campaign about, well, really there's two. The two things they're warning about is, so the, the two main things that Bernie is apparently warning the Biden campaign about is they're not reaching out enough to working class Americans and talking about issues that matter to them, you know, kitchen table issues like paychecks, wages, jobs, health care, health insurance, um, evictions, you know, foreclosures, these kinds of issues. So he says they need to emphasize that more, which is obvious. And also, the Latino outreach is not good. And really, what you get into here is these four battleground states with Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania, where Trump is polling almost neck and neck with Biden, or within the margin of error on some of these polls to where Biden is underperforming what Hillary did in Florida in 2016. So the polls right now with Hillary in 2016 versus where Biden is right now in 2020, Hillary is outperforming Biden right now. Biden is underperforming where Hillary was. And this is cause for concern because um, every path to victory for Trump goes through Florida. If Trump doesn't win Florida, he doesn't have a chance in hell. And I do not think liberal America and the DNC and corporate Democrats are ready to have to explain Trump winning re-election on the backs of the black and brown working class coming back to him and supporting him in larger numbers than they did in 2016. And this is kind of what polling is showing us, especially with the Latino community, is that Trump is actually doing better in 2020 than he did in 2016. And I don't really think that's got anything to do with Trump. I think that's all just really about how shitty Biden is, if I'm being honest. Because I think people are looking for a better option than Trump. Trump has literally got 190,000 people killed from coronavirus. But when you look at Joe Biden, half the time he can't even string a sentence together. So do you want to take the senile guy that, that says he wants to do the right thing and is trying, but really he just cares about his corporate donors? Or do you want to go with the guy who's a fucking raving lunatic and a reactionary, but at least he seems to have his mental faculties about him more? And this is what people are debating right now. And this also gets us into some of this Bob Woodward news, where apparently Donald Trump thought it was a good idea to give Bob Woodward of Watergate deep throat infamy, decided to give him, like... 18 or 20 interviews on the record with recordings where Trump is essentially contradicting all of his public statements regarding the virus from February onwards, where publicly he's saying, oh, it's just like the flu, it's not a big deal, don't worry about it, masks don't matter, nobody needs to wear masks. And then behind the scenes, he's telling Bob Woodward, oh, Bob, it's so horrible, it's like five times worse than the flu, it moves through the air, you know, it's not just touch, you know, this kind of stuff, and Bob's going, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, interesting, so what did she tell you? And then there's a lot of people that are giving Bob Woodward shit because he kept this information in his back pocket during February and March when Trump is lying to everybody, and everyone is saying, oh, Bob Woodward got people killed, that's what David Sirota said, I think that's a little extreme, but I think it's kind of funny, but you get 190,000 Americans Trump downplayed it the entire fucking time. He knew he was downplaying it. He's on the record down 
he's on the the recordings admitting he downplayed it and I just don't know if this is going to hurt him still. I don't know if it's going to hurt him. It just doesn't seem to matter. It just doesn't seem to matter. And you've got him also, you've got Trump in this Trump campaign. They're, they're, they've decided to have another indoor rally in Nevada with thousands of people. And this <laughs> they're going to get people killed. So, again, Trump literally cannot get out of his own fucking way. Like, the only thing people care about is the fucking pandemic, and he still just has refused to get a handle on this thing. So, it just doesn't seem to be hurting his poll numbers, though. So, this thing is not in the bag for Biden in any kind of way. And I thought it was kind of funny that, like, the first paragraph of this Washington Post article that they did about Bernie says that Bernie is privately behind closed doors warning warning the Biden campaign that they're in trouble. Uh, well, motherfucker, it's in the Washington Post, so how private really is it? But that's just kind of funny. Like, I think it needs to be said, because these are the things that Bernie didn't say enough during the primary, when he'd say, like, oh, my friend Joe, you know, my friend Joe, Joe can beat Trump too, you know, these kinds of things. That's a horrible Bernie impression, impersonation, I apologize. But, you know... He never went for the jugular against Biden. Him and Biden are friends, and Biden was nice to him when he first showed up in the Senate, and he just never went for the jugular against Biden. He refused to attack Biden. I'm talking about Bernie here. Bernie refused to attack Biden on NAFTA, on PNTR, Permanent Normalization of Trading Relations with China, on the Iraq War Vote, and the horrible record that he had during his eight years as Veep to Obama with the foreclosures and evictions and refusing to attack the banks and go after the banksters. So, yeah, Biden's in trouble, and Trump's not out of this thing. I think Biden is definitely still favored to win, maybe slightly, but honestly, it's I think it's more of a toss-up, if I'm being honest. And again, we're looking at Latinos in Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, Pennsylvania. They could be the people, the, the group of people that, that determine this election one way or another. And we've got essentially, again, I keep saying this every episode, whichever party wants to step up and be the party of the working class, like, we're here, people. We're here. Come take our votes. And it's not going to be the Republicans, I'm just telling y'all, but... Biden's not done enough to earn my vote right now. And, you know, the working class is, you know, up for grabs right now. And any party that wants to step up and take care of the working class and do right by the American people is is, is going to get a lot of votes out of that. And Trump signed an eviction moratorium through the CDC using, you know, public health laws. But like I mentioned earlier in the episode, the city of Houston still has 667 evictions on the docket because what's going on with that is that these renters are not aware of their rights. They're not aware of their rights, and a lot of these things are being done over Zoom now, and the judges are not telling these people what their rights are. The people, the obviously the landlords are not going to tell these renters what their rights are. So this is how you can have a federal eviction moratorium signed by Trump through the end of the year but you still have 667 evictions on the docket because the judges and the landlords are just not telling these renters what their rights are and they don't even know that if they just mention that they've lost wages due to the pandemic, that the judge is supposed to waive the eviction and it's supposed to go away. 
But if the judge doesn't hear those magic words that they lost wages, well, then he evicts them and he sends them out on the street. So this is what's going on right now. The eviction moratorium didn't really help. Um, he's, Trump signed like a $300 plus up on unemployment where he stole the money from FEMA that's supposed to go to hurricanes and disaster relief. But that money's only going to go for like two more weeks or something, and then it's run out. And the only thing we're getting from Biden is showing up in Pennsylvania with some beer and offering beer to people. Like, hey, remember last time I was, I was here, uh, I said I'd bring you beer, so here's some beer. And apparently he had some Iron City beer, which is a local Pittsburgh beer or whatever. But again, this is all fucking pandering. Like, none of this shit is going to get you a better job or higher wages on your job. None of this shit's going to help you join a union or strengthen the labor movement. None of this shit is going to help coronavirus. Like, Joe Biden giving someone a beer while he wears a mask and, like, liberal America's getting their dicks hard off it is just, it's not going to change anything. It's fucking political pandering. So, the, the one thing I want to get into here, kind of at the end, is mail-in ballots are already going out right now. I think North Carolina has already sent out mail-in ballots, and North Carolina is going to be one of these important states again moving forward. And... You know, this gets us into two issues. The first issue is that Trump doesn't have as much time to make up ground as he normally would in like a normal election where you can go all the way through October and have an October surprise and all this kind of last minute shit. Like these mail-in ballots are already going out and a lot of this is already going to be baked in the cake. Like a lot of these results are already going to be baked in by the time we even get to October. And this also gets to some of the mail drama the USPS, I got one of these this week, the USPS sent out a flyer which was on, you know, nice glossy cardstock and it said be sure to request your mail-in ballots early, you know, make sure you do what you need to do to get your vote counted and, you know, you know, protect your vote and this kind of stuff. And apparently the Trump administration's all up in arms about that and they're they're offended, shocked and offended at the misinformation being spread by the USPS and Apparently, the Trump administration has filed some kind of injunction to prevent drop boxes in, I think, Pennsylvania maybe is where they were talking about this. They've got these drop boxes where you can have a mail-in ballot but drop it off physically at a location that would be just for election ballots. And Trump administration is saying this is for fraud. This is going to be rife with fraud. And you've got Democrats and Republicans, both sides of the aisle in Pennsylvania, saying, no, we've done this before. It's safe. Um, you know, it's not a big deal. And, you know, we've got DeJoy. There's been more dirt on DeJoy coming out. And the big scandal with DeJoy, the Postmaster General, who's a Trump donor, and apparently he's a really enthusiastic Trump donor because I think he's committed election fraud or donor fraud at this point. Because apparently what DeJoy was doing at his previous business, which was a shipping logistics business privately, though, not anything to do with the USPS, and apparently what he was doing was coercing his employees to donate money to the Trump campaign, and then what he would do is he would issue them bonuses so they could recoup the money that they donated to the Trump campaign. That is absolutely 100% donor fraud, and that's a state charge as well. So he can't be pardoned by Trump um, on the federal charges. He can be pardoned by Trump for federal charges, but if he is guilty of donor fraud in states, and guilty of violating state law, there's not a damn thing Trump can do about that to protect him. So that's interesting there. And really, you know, we've got roughly a little less than two months now till this election. 
and it, it's gonna be it's gonna be like nothing we've ever seen before. And I think the way this is gonna play out is there's gonna be a lot more Republicans that are listening to Trump and the Republican Party saying that they're going to vote on the day of in person with a old school election ballot, um, like going to a poll. And this is what a lot of the majority of Republicans are saying they're going to vote like that, and a majority of Democrats are saying they're going to vote by mail. And the scenario that I think you're going to see play out is you might even see Trump with a sizable lead on election night when we go to bed. So when people go to sleep that Tuesday, November 3rd, it's it's very likely that we're going to see a Trump lead, but you're not going to get a Biden concession because you're going to have so many millions of ballots coming in late that it's literally going to take maybe up to a week or maybe two weeks or even longer. We could really be looking at a, a Bush v. Gore 2000 Florida recount situation where we just really don't know what the fuck is going on. And I was in eighth grade when that happened, and that was really divisive for the country. And that was that was in a time where before that election, things were relatively like okay. That's pre-9-11, that's pre-George W. Bush, that's pre-Iraq War, that's pre-2008 crash, that's pre-2020 everything. So, and think about how that tore the country apart and how divisive that was and the the bullshit with um, Jeb Bush being governor of Florida and giving that to, to Bush, his brother, and then you've got Katherine Harris who was an RNC official and then she's overseeing the recount and then the Supreme Court comes in and essentially just gives it to, to Bush, but then you had Gore conceding that night and... This is where you get the Democrats right now. The liberals like Hillary are talking about never concede, never concede. Hillary didn't concede in 2016, and she's out there saying that Biden should never concede in 2020 no matter what happens. So we could conceivably have a situation where Trump is leading on election day and election night, and he has a sizable lead on the morning of November 4th, but Biden's not going to concede because you're going to have these mail-in ballots from Democrats trickling in and what you're going to have is Trump's lead's going to get chopped off more and more and more. And Trump's lead's going to get whittled down to the point where they're neck and neck. And then it's going to get litigated out. And this thing's going to be a fucking shit show. There, I just don't see any way this thing just goes smoothly uh, with these ballots being counted. And I, I don't, I don't, I still think Biden probably wins. And I think if Biden is declared the winner, that you will see. Trump leave office. There have been some rumors that there might be a possibility that Trump steps down early in like December or January and allows Mike Pence to assume office as president. And that would give Pence the opportunity to pardon Trump for all of his crimes and all of his federal shenanigans and the financial stuff dealing with Deutsche Bank and possibly the Russians and getting in with the, the Southern District of New York and everything going on with those investigations that they've got going on with the Trump administration and Trump organization and all that bullshit. So I don't know how much I buy into any of that. I mean, that's it seems fucking nuts. It seems crazy. But honestly, look at 2020. You going to tell me that any of this shit would be crazy in relation to the rest of the shit we got going on in 2020? So... You know, th those are all just kind of things to keep your eye on right now when you're thinking about the presidential election moving forward. But I'm still on the record as saying I'm voting for Howie Hawkins and Angela Walker, and I really don't think Joe Biden's going to save us. 
Um, there are some people out there that are trying to make the argument that, you know, maybe Joe Biden is not FDR, but maybe he could be like a LBJ light or something like that. And, uh, you know, I, it makes me sick. I, I really, I, I don't know. I don't, I, let me put it like this, and this is how Professor Harvey J.K. put it on the first interview I ever did on New Deal Democracy, is that if Biden does any of the stuff that we want him to do, it won't be because he wanted to do it. It will only be because we were on the streets and we fucking made him do that shit. And I think Professor K is absolutely right when he says that. Anything that we get out of Biden is only, be, is only going to be because we're on the street and we demanded it from him and we made him give us that shit. So we're not going to get a federal jobs guarantee. We're not going to get universal health care. I would like to get a public option. He's been talking about a $15 minimum wage. He's been talking about card check. So, you know, we're talking about the George Floyd Policing Act, which would end qualified immunity nationally for these cops so they could be sued civilly and lose their houses and their pensions and their third boats, um, all three boats, when they get sued civilly, when they murder these people on the streets. So, yeah, I don't know. But all these are all just things to keep your eye on. But this shit's getting hot. It's heating up. So I'm definitely going to have my popcorn, and I'll definitely be watching. But, you know, really more as a bystander at this point. So... We're going to come back with an outro, and we're going to sign off, and uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back to New Deal Democracy. I'm your host, Zach Hill, and we're going to sign off. So I just want to take the time to thank everyone that has you know, listened to this whole podcast and made it all the way to the outro here. And I especially want to take the time to thank Age of Change for coming on, especially Antonella and Trevor. And they were just absolutely amazing. What a great interview. And I'm just so super excited to be able to continue going out with them every Thursday at 5 p.m. at Discovery Green for the Homeless Outreach. If you're located locally in Houston and you want to come out, it's a great time. If you're looking for some positivity and some community with some leftists, definitely come out on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at Discovery Green. So thanks again to Antonella and Trevor. You guys were amazing. Thanks so much. And I know some of y'all are still wondering what's going on with my Twitter. It's still suspended. This next two weeks, I'm going to be taking some time and redoing my social media. But in the meantime, if you're listening and you want to reach out to me and communicate with me, email me at newdealdemocracy at gmail.com. Newdealdemocracy at gmail.com, all lowercase, no spaces or anything. If anybody does want to reach out to me and communicate with me, I know there was a lot of people on Twitter that I was getting close with. So if you want to email me at newdealdemocracy at gmail.com, we can definitely communicate. In the meantime, until I get my social media up and running in the next week or so. The other thing I would ask is that if you've listened you know, this far, I'm definitely calling you a dedicated listener at this point. Please share a link to Spotify or Apple iTunes podcast with someone that you know that's a Bernie supporter. If they hate Democrats and Republicans, please share a link with someone in your friend or family circle because I really need to get the listeners up, and I'd really appreciate it. So, um, with all that being said, thank you so much for everything, everyone that's taking the time to listen. Everyone stay safe and healthy, and please, for God's sake, wear a damn mask. This corona shit's not going anywhere, and we're almost at 200,000 now. So, I will talk to y'all in two weeks with a new episode of New Deal Democracy. Thanks again. <laughs>